Hoboken, NJ. How long have you been there for? I, I actually started living there when I was a college student. Yeah. I was going to NYU. So that was about 10 and years now? Five, ten years? <laughs> Something like, <laughs> like that, that, yeah. No, back in the 70s. Yeah. So I've seen the com- complete transformation to yeah. pretty much a, you know, just a, a wreck of a town that had been abandoned to a large degree and uh, by industry, by, you know, a- anybody that was sort of had any <laughs> middle, even middle class aspirations mm-hmm. to get out and, you know, move to the suburbs. Um, it was just, you know garbage blowing in the street on a winter's night and $65 for a five-room apartment a month and it was uh, you know I've seen it go from that actually a little fun fact I just learned the other day was that Hoboken was the pop it's one square mile it's it's most densely Hmm. populated square mile I think in America outside of Manhattan and in 1910 there were 75,000 people living in Hoboken, and it didn't have the infrastructure it has now. So that meant there were a lot of uh, immigrant families really just jammed yeah. into apartments, and they would go eat in the parks in the summer because it was just too hot to cook in their apartments. And, you know, just people lined up wall-to-wall sleeping. And from 1910 on, the population declined. When I got there in the late 70s, it was still declining, and, uh, you know, we being part of this, the, the, there was a music scene in Hoboken that really flourished all through the 1980s, and it was still declining all through the 1980s. It wasn't until the 1990s that it started to uh, turn around because there were condos were being built, yep. and uh, now it's up to about 55,000. But it went down, to, I think, to about 20,000, 25,000 at, at one point. It was the $65 a month rent prices that brought you out there originally? Yeah, that. A girl I met <laughs> on the path. Uh, and you it, literally followed her home one day. <laughs> yeah, all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. Conspired to uh, send me there. But Manhattan was still semi-livable, right? Well, no. Manhattan, that was yeah. at the time of uh, Gerald Ford, you know, New York to city dropped drop dead. dead yeah. So it was, I mean, we didn't care, but it was, you know, I look back at some of my diaries and all my friends are always getting mugged and yeah. So not unlivable from a rent standpoint, but unlivable from a yeah, it was crime wa- standpoint. You know, it was a wild, you know. Yeah. It was a wild place and kind of falling apart. And you know, the places people played were often, you know, old theaters or old nightclubs where the paint was all peeling. You know, nobody nobody was putting much money into infrastructure at that point, and. You know, I mean, it, it, it does sound like all of those same problems could be extended to Hoboken at the, at the same yeah, time period. Yeah, Hoboken perhaps more so yeah. because it it didn't have didn't really have you know all that any culture to speak yeah. of. You know, very little. There was some semblance of a music scene starting to bubble up at the time. Well, li- literally, I think you know I can honestly say I was about the first person there by accident and I was just happened to be forming a band yeah. that was practicing in Morristown, New Jersey and playing a place called The Place in Dover but we, we never thought we'd be playing in Hoboken and then yeah. uh, Steve Fallon literally right around the corner from our the apartment that we were in for $65 a month eventually the band all moved in there a friend of mine from high school also moved to town and she said hey I'm they're looking for waitresses and bands around the corner I took a tape over, and Steve Fallon was in the club, yeah. and uh, gave him the tape, and 
that was really the beginning of it. And slowly but surely, you know, friends of mine from the city who had bands started, you know, one day would be like, hey, I'm moving to Hoboken. I'm like, what? And next thing you know, there was you know, this whole sort of uh, thing kind of centered around Maxwell's that, I mean, really Steve Fallon, you know, nurtured and built and developed. Was there a sense that it was just going to be, as a band, too hard to break through in Manhattan at the time? I think we were a little bit intimidated, you know, yeah. at that point. Because there, you know, the, the, there was I stuff mean, going on. That, yeah, and, and we were yeah. going to CBGBs and seeing, you know, the Ramones and yeah. Talking Heads and Television and Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And they were all very daunting, you know, <laughs> badass folks. You know, if you've read Please Kill Me, they were kind of hardcore, iconic, game-changing people making music. And to think that you could just bring your thing into that seemed maybe a maybe a little bit of a a leap i mean we eventually did play cbgbs and whatnot but the one band actually that we did see in new york the feelies mm-hmm. were a new jersey band and i think in some ways people kind of went i get that that's kind of like suburban kid goes to the big city you know it's funny. Like, I guess there is sort of kind of a warmer, like, cuddlier image of the bands that were coming out of New Jersey at the time. Yeah. Or, you know, there was the no wave thing. And one was more about, hey, come on. Yeah. Jo- join the fun. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. All, we're all here, like, in this clubhouse of Maxwell's. And, yeah. You know, everybody's welcome versus, you know, I'm a badass, no wave rocker and don't fuck with me. You like, know? you're not turning anyone away at the door of your shows. Yeah, yeah. We were yeah. like, hey, yeah, we'll hang out with yeah. you. After. You know, it's a d- different mindset. And, you know, they both, I think art gets created in both those mindsets. Good stuff comes out of either being like, you know, the cool badass or the yeah. the welcoming, uh, you know, whatever. Was there a sense at the time that you were going to be able to actually carve out a living doing music? My first job out of college was working at New York Rocker, mm-hmm. which was sort of a a magazine that was devoted to the CBGB's kind of scene initially. And then as more scenes developed in LA and Minneapolis and Athens, Georgia, and, you know, it started reporting on those things as well. Um, so, and, you know, when you're paying $65 a month rent, and you, you cobble some kind of living together. I guess making a living is a pretty low it was, bar. It's it was sixty-five bucks a month. A lot lower bar than it is, you <laughs> yeah. know. For I don't, I don't know how bands have to have like I guess real jobs or big yeah. trust funds or something to yeah get their thing going today. I'm not quite sure how it all works, you know, with all the Williamsburg kids and. I think it's I think it's kind of a uh, thirty people in the loft situation in a lot of those cases, from what I can tell. Actually, we had a band that's on Bar None Records. Yeah. That, called happiness and they were telling me about yeah some crazy illegal loft thing that mm-hmm. they ended up spending the night in that had like bars inside it and little kind of uh cubicles that you'd you know you'd rent a little cubicle to sleep in but then there were all these like cool things you could do yeah in and around your little cubicle yeah <laughs> you know barbecue pits and it's like it sounded really crazy it's like it's like that scene from uh pinocchio where they go on to the, the, yeah, yeah, ship. the island of lost boys or although barbecue pits though you know there was that ghost ship thing that happened in oakland a year or two ago yeah. you heard about that right the yeah. big fire i mean that's actually sounds like a terrible idea yeah it sounds like yeah. wonderful on the, I on maybe, the face exactly, of it maybe there wasn't uh, a barbecue yeah. pit, but the way they described it just sounded like pinball machines and yeah, big video displays and performance 
art going on, you know, twenty four seven while you then you'd crawl off into your cubicle and yeah, sleep till you wanted to get up again. So you could still sort of do the romantic band thing of like, oh, I'm in college or I just recently graduated college and I'm able to to just I'm in a rock band like can, I'm, I'm scraping yeah. it by I'm scraping by it was a lot easier obviously to do at that point than it yeah. is now yeah I, I mean I do know some kids are trying to do it but you yeah know, they, they got you know they're working real jobs too that yeah to get to that moment where you're can really go on the road a lot it's very tricky maybe you give up your apartment maybe you can airbnb yeah. your apartment now yeah what made you get out of the actual music making part of the system to be honest i think i liked i was inter- i found the people doing the business side of it really kind of interesting yeah. I, I tended to gravitate towards the booking agents and the managers and you actually ended up on that side of things because you enjoyed it. For a lot of people, they just sort of gravitate over because they realize that yeah, they can't. Yeah, well, there's something about being in a band, especially when you're kind of struggling. Yeah. You know, you're in a cargo van in the winter driving yeah. around the Midwest. And after a while, you've after you've repeated that experience yeah. about, you know, a thousand times. The romantic it's part only takes you so It's not quite as romantic yeah. and, and uh, you know. Yeah, you want to maybe rethink what you're doing a little bit. And I think I, I always recognized I was better at, I mean, I think I'm a pretty good songwriter and mm-hmm. whatnot, but I think I felt like I was better at recognizing talent, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe because I had a bar, you know, I was like, well, if I'm going to get involved with something, it's got to be better than what I'm doing. Yeah. And, you know, so I had some sense of <laughs> something oh, that, so the music that you are were making at the time if was, I was the like bar. A point five, I was looking for the point eight, and point if nine. you wanted to sign people, they would have to be better than your band. Exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> how, that's sort of how I thought in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of pulled the plug on music making altogether. I did. I had you know, I was in a band called A, which didn't last very long, but then morphed into uh, this other band, the Bongos. Mm-hmm. Then I started a band called the Individuals, which lasted. About three and a half years, yeah. we t- toured all over the country. Got an and EP and an LP out of it. Got an EP and LP. We're down at Mitch Easter's drive-in yeah. studio when REM was recording their first EP, and you know, played with all kinds of people. And Till Tuesday and the Del Fuegos <laughs> and X. We opened for X and David Johansson. You know, on and on. So you know, we had that. That was sort of the the real experience. Then I got married and. I decided to sort of leave that band behind and start a new band called Rage to Live. We actually got on MTV with that band hmm. with a director named Adam Bernstein kind of found us and wanted to make a video for us on the cheap. So we were like, okay. And then another guy, Tom Prendergast, who worked at Maxwell's as a bartender, wanted to start a record label after starting an amazing record store that was in Hoboken called Pure Platters. He started Bar None and then... Uh, you know, I had this band Ridge to live, but I was kind of, like I said, I'd already been on the road and done all that. And I wasn't real excited about maybe going back out there and doing mm. it again. And the guys I was playing with were really good players and they were in demand and had other projects going. So to get them all on the road was not an easy task either. So finally I said to Tom Prendergast, you know, I'm sorry you invested all this money, but I don't know if I can really get this band on the road. And to this day, I can't believe he agreed to this. But I said, but why don't you make me your partner? <laughs> <laughs> I'm reliable. After you, after you spend all this money. and Because uh, yeah. I found this band that I think is really good, and we could work with on them. And, and that band was They Might Be Giants. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of were out of the gate 
pretty That's a pretty good with, first yeah, signing, yeah. yeah. And probably because that was the first signing, we didn't crash and burn like many yeah. small labels do. You know, we sold about 10,000 records over the course of a year, learned yeah. everything about, you know, a lot about the music business and eventually hooked up with some bigger distributor label type folks, Restless, and ended up taking that same record and getting it on MTV, again with Adam Bernstein, ironic, just by coincidence, he produced early videos by They Might Be mm-hmm. Giants as well, just, just you know, it was unrelated that he was working with the Rage to Live band, but... Uh, it's and a that's small, really what it's us. a small world you were yeah. operating in, I and, imagine. You know, so when that that got on MTV in over the Christmas break, we kind of got stuck in yeah. there at, in heavy rotation, and then the record just started selling, and we were off to the races. It's a beautiful point in the uh, in the history of MTV when a band like They Might Be Giants could have found their way somehow into heavy rotation. Rick Krim, God bless him. He he really he definitely gave gave us. A bunch of shots over over the yeah. years, and if he thought there was something interesting going on, he he got behind a lot of interesting bands, and sometimes they worked, and sometimes they didn't, and sometimes they had their moment, and then it was done. But he gave a lot of people a shot at that format when it meant something. Getting married sort of changed the equation for you. I mean, it, it sounds like it, it kind of indirectly broke the band up. Uh, yeah, I think you know, was it a sense of having to get a little more serious? Just, like you don't have to carry an amp around all the yeah. time and go to band practice all the time and be off on the road all the time and yeah just creating some kind of life and but you know i always wrote songs or yeah. attempted to write songs or the band rage to live i was married during the the rage to live years which again we didn't play that much i mean we played locally and got down to dc and a few other places but and then after that one day i was just like you know what am i why am i doing this Pouring my heart out. I was actually at CBGB's, I think, and I was like, why am I doing this? You know, like, and uh, I just decided to kind of pull back and really focus on the label and try different little dip my toe in here and there. But really, it was uh, secondary to bar none and trying to make a go of that. And then about three years ago, right, that was when July, right? Was it almost four now? Four years ago, Todd Abramson, who took over Maxwell's from Steve Fallon, decided he wanted to get out, and it, it just wasn't sustainable for him based on a whole lot of things you can probably read about on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, the first band to ever play here was A, which was yeah, uh, the band I had with Richard Barone and Rob Norris and Frank Giannini that went on to become the Bongos, and... I said, since we were the first band, how about we'll, we'll be the last band? So, you know, they had about two weeks of farewell nights of different various bands. It was yeah. a bar none night. But we, uh, the Bongos, my other band, the Individuals, and and A, who hadn't played there since 1978 or something, you know, got back together. And we learned all this old material that had never been recorded properly and, uh, you know, kind of did a big show and they closed off the street. And, and then ironically, like two weeks later, Justin Bieber was Justin Bieber no uh uh Justin Timberlake rented the place out and it was a crowd about 10 times the size yeah. of what we thought was such a was dramatic so thing it's shocking that A didn't <laughs> have quite the same draw as a Justin Timberlake but right, I guess right. that's just... we thought it was like you know a real yeah you know big deal but but you know it was all kind of press and TV cameras and you know just got all kinds of media attention it sounds like you're 
kind of doing it on a lark, though. It was kind of a lark, but it was also like, wow, I, I get to... I get yeah. to play again. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It was that was very exciting. I, I think I got a little caught up in, you know, when the media eye really descends on you, it, it's a pretty heady experience, to say the least. But out of all that, then when that was all over and you're kind of like left washed up on the shore, you know, after the tsunami or whatever, you're kind of sitting there and uh, like, well, now what? Were you itching for it at all over the years? I mean, you're around it, obviously. You know, you're uh, running this record label. You're working with bands that you came up with or even came up after you and you're watching them have different levels of success and all the while you've really pulled yourself out of that side of things i mean it's got to be hard when you had the passion and the love for playing music to watch other bands get to do it all the time yeah there, yeah i certainly had moments of uh you know sort of jealousy yeah. or like what if this had happened yeah. or what if i could get this band back together or the band back together yeah. and, and i did that you know we got the individuals back together yeah. a few years before that but when that was all over it was, it was actually as and i you know i always played guitar in my house and sort of tried to put songs together or tried wrote songs for other people at different times so you know i, I kept like a little little bit i was a little bit in the game but i also didn't really have that much to say and it wasn't until after you know, it's almost like, wow, I have a clean slate. You know, it's like I've done all these things that were sort of about the past. Now, you know, I have to look forward. You know, I realized I really wanted to put a band together. And the first guy that came to the table was Mike Rosenberg, who's sitting next to me right now. Should I pass the mic over to him? Sure. Glenn and I had played together over, off and on over the years because yeah. we were friends. And we'd always run into each other in Hoboken at shows. I was working at Maxwell's for the last three years as a doorman. So we were all together the last night. I think he and I were the last two people in the room that weren't a cleanup crew to yeah. clean up the wreck. We were just sort of quietly just looking at the room. But we had played... He put a little band together with like some other bar none employees who we used to rehearse in their office with Jill and Tom and me. Um, and we went up to Nyack once to play a couple of times or up right with that. Uh, so we were kind of fooling around on and off over the years. Yeah. And I wasn't in any regular bands. And then, oh, maybe a month or so after Maxwell's, he called me and. Well, we ran into each other, and he said, I got some songs, and we just started banging them around in my apartment on a Sunday afternoon, mostly playing covers and stuff, just playing together. And then he gradually started playing me these songs and started to go from there. Then it was like, well, let's try some of this with a drummer, and then oh, our friend Rick plays, and yeah. before we do it, we were sort of going along. That sort of gets back, I think, to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the external pressure of of playing music. You know, the, again, the the difference between starting a band in sort of those early days of Hoboken versus starting it in Manhattan. And in the same way, I mean, there's when you've just sort of been fooling around for all those years, there's absolutely no pressure on you at all to deliver anything. Right. It was just really about playing, yeah. you know, like, not having aspirations like, oh, we're going to have a band and play gigs and do all this business. It was just kind of like, let's entertain ourselves on yeah. a Sunday afternoon, see what happens. Actually trying to put a band together, it is really difficult. And it took it took a long time yeah. and to get you know a place where everybody can rehearse and to get everybody to get a free night. I would feel and, like if anybody was in a place to do it, though, it would be you because you're on that other side of things. Well, yeah, I have, I have, some you have some resources, kind of put yeah. some of that stuff together, 
and and we got lucky in a couple of situations as well but but you know i there are you know and again you know we're we're not kids so yeah we're definitely doing the it's almost like we're post dad rock you know <laughs> but you know there's a, a lot of guys you know they have a good job and they have like 20 guitars on the wall but they can't get it together to even get in a room with three other guys it's like someone's always like oh no i gotta you know go to the soccer game yeah or, you know it's not as you get older you're, you know there's so many things that kind of battle for your time and i think we finally got to a point where we got four guys that were like yeah. everybody sort of psychologically committed at a certain point there's kind of this in-between level of commitment that you have to have to a project like that obviously you can't expect that it's going to be going to necessarily take over your entire life or right. that you know that it, that this is your ticket to wherever right but it has to be enough commitment that somebody's able to do that exactly. on a regular basis and, and you gotta you know make room for people to yeah do what they have to do but on the other hand i would be you know be like okay you can't make it i'm bringing another drummer yeah. in you know i did that in the beginning because i just was like we got a show let's do it you know and out of that mindset also then suddenly we were thinking well why don't we record something you know and next thing you know we were recording sort of rough demos and then now here we are with an album and it's kind of it's kind of surprise you know yeah. it was a surprise yeah. it's kind of amazed me all the songs are things that have been written you know since the the that the end of when maxwell's closed maxwell's by the way has reopened under new owners and after a period of not having music now they're having music yeah. again i've actually you know played on a jersey beat show when does that transition occur when does it it go from you guys just messing around to this actually being a, a real thing that you're doing that was what the first show was for a former manager that i worked for a birthday party and i think we played three songs with a different drummer and poisson rouge you know mm -hmm. so it was a nice venue yeah we just had to do three songs but yeah you know get to the point where we could actually do that did we even rehearse with the drummer i can't remember I think he, we did. It was a talented guy, Dave Richmond, who actually did graphic design for us. That's like the band equivalent of when comedians have their five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of just like, hey, you know, this isn't super serious. It's just right. sort of and a fun thing that we're doing. Material that you can, yeah. you know, actually put a set together and, you know, then to actually do something where you got an encore. I mean, it keeps, you know, keeps developing. We're having a blast, right, Mike? We had our first rehearsal where we had a drummer, which was our friend Chris Butler. And when we all started to set up, we sort of naturally, you know, from our, we played a Lou Reed song. And then literally like the next day or something, he passed away. Or he might have passed away a couple of days before we just sort of naturally fell into, because mm -hmm. we're all big Velvets fans. Sure. And then maybe later that week, Glenn was asked to play a Lou Reed tribute show at this place called the Rodeo Bar. Mm -hmm. And that was actually, it was still Glenn Morrow then. It was Glenn and me and Chris Butler, I believe, or maybe Doug Weigel. Sorry, but, um, and then another guitar player who agreed to do it right before the show, who we hadn't played with until we got on stage. That was fun. We did a couple of songs and then... There were a million other acts that night, and then we sort of went back to what we were doing, rehearsing with Chris or Dave, and to me, it was really like, these songs are starting to sound good. We're kind yeah. of, you know, they were Glenn's songs, and they were taking shape, and it's like, oh, maybe this is this is really pretty good, and, you know, it was a little while before we had enough stuff to play a full set. Yeah. We were doing all sorts of crazy covers, and just trying to put enough stuff together. 
And um, just for me, that's when it started to feel like I really enjoy this. I want to keep doing this every week. This is good stuff. And it was kind of like, geez, can we really take it out? Let's think of a name. And we did a lot of one or two songs at a tribute show, a King's Tribute, a Le Poison Rouge party. Yeah, We were one of like 20 bands that night. Talk about a pretty low pressure situation. It doesn't get much lower than doing a couple of King songs. Right. Things change a little bit when, when this is when you're writing your first stuff in, in yeah. that many years. It's obviously in a lot of ways a much more personal project and you're really you're putting yourself out there in a way that you aren't when you're playing a Lou Reed song one of the great things you know is all the technology that's out there now that mm -hmm. wasn't out there you know I'd be sitting my back in the early 80s I'd be sitting there with you know an unplugged electric guitar just kind of banging away and if it sounded good enough on an unplugged electric guitar you know when I plugged it in it would sound better you know I would know like if this actually sounds like something unplugged yeah and that was about the extent of you know maybe i'd have a little cassette deck and i'd record things into that but you know now with like smartphones mm -hmm. you can just you have an idea you just bam put it down keep refining it listen to what you did record the band on a smartphone pass those around to everybody i reread robert palmer's deep blues he's a hoboken guy right he was a hoboken yeah. guy and a new york times critic ultimately yeah. and he was very supportive of all the Hoboken bands in the 80s because he had been, he was actually in Hoboken in the 60s. Yeah, the Insect Trust. With the Insect Trust. Yeah. But, you know, they never played in Hoboken other than maybe people's kitchens. You they, know? they have an album named after Hoboken. Yeah, but they didn't really play in Hoboken. <laughs> they would play like, yeah. you know, the... Because there just wasn't a place to right. play. Right, and the there time. were a lot yeah. of like, you know, discotheques yeah. in the city that, that they'd play. And Anyway, yeah, I reread his book and, you know, I read it when I was maybe 23 but I, di I didn't have access to all these blues records, you know, mm -hmm. back then. But now with Spotify, I could listen to all of yeah. them. I could listen to the garage bands that covered them. I could listen to the psychedelic versions. Yeah. I could listen to the electric blues and the country blues versions. You suddenly have this sort of wealth of material and, and inspiration stuff that you'd have to have, like, the friend with the just killer record collection that would let you go over his house and maybe tape a bunch of stuff for a mixtape. Yeah, it's a very different uh, experience, and I'm definitely embracing all, enjoying that aspect of it. You were just kind of able to turn the songwriting on after a couple of decades of, of not doing it at all? Well, I, I w always sort of did it, but I didn't, like I said, I didn't really feel like I had much to say, yeah. and I'd sort of have these like half-finished songs, and there was no real impetus to finish material. I remember Chris Stamey once said to me that Alex Chilton was that way, like he just wouldn't write until he had some reason to write, and that kind of probably messed with my head a little bit, you know? Well, if Alex uh, Chilton died, yeah, if it's good enough right, for Alex right. Chilton, it's good enough uh, for me, right? But yeah, it was an odd feeling. I definitely sort of attacked it, but, you know, I think with songwriting, you have to sort of, you can't just say, I mean, you can, you can do kind of work for hire, like, I'm going to write a song now, but those kind of songs always come out a little forced and a little stilted you have to just sort of wait for something to come to you kind of reach out to it and then you know start some process where you try to figure out what it's about there's a pretty big middle ground between never finishing a song and then having enough to finish an album got hundreds of songs on the floodgates phone. just opened at one they point they really did it yeah. was it kind of you know freaked me out a little cause... but, but ha having a band and having a, a definite project cha yeah. changes it yeah. for you yeah. totally like, totally. this is actually going to go somewhere. Somebody's going to hear this. It's worth finishing. 
Yeah. Or, you know, I have someone else, you know, yeah. starting with Mike, you know, it's like, I have someone else I can actually is interested in this <laughs> stuff. You know, that's a big thing. Like, yeah. Going from just, I want to do this thing to yeah. somebody else wants to do it with me or, you know, someone else is actually interested in what I'm doing and, <clears throat> you know, building it up from there. It's, that is, yeah, a real sort of pivotal point. Or as you said, you know, yeah, you got to put yourself out there and be willing to, there's a, a certain absurdity to guys our age doing this, yeah. you know, but. And given the level of success that your bands achieved early on, like you couldn't, you couldn't naturally assume that, you know, three decades later that anyone's really necessarily going to be interested in what you're putting out into the world. Yeah. I mean, I think we're speaking, you know, we're, I, I wrote songs definitely that are, you know, hopefully they, they have some universal yeah. appeal, but they're also, you know, sort of aimed at people yeah. my age or dealing with the stuff that, you know, you deal with when, you know, I'm sort of post, my kids are out of the house. What do I do? My wife started doing pottery she replaced all our <laughs> ikea pot stuff with with plates and this is this is made. your this is your version of the pottery barn yeah yeah <laughs> and you know i started making music yeah. and you know we both kind of went well we both got to find something to do for ourselves you know that's yeah. not we don't have that like let's talk about the kids or let's drive our kids here or let's you know figure out how to get them into college or all that kind of stuff. It was like all that was gone too, you know, so. If you had started down this road again and done everything the way you're doing it now, but you didn't get the kind of notice that you're getting right now, do you feel like you would have continued to do it? Because it started I mean, off we, as something, being something for you originally. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's still, I keep saying that it's really about the process, you yeah. know. I don't really, I mean, this is great being here talking yeah. to you, but. You didn't say, it, oh, one day I hope I can be on a podcast. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, any of it. I mean, again, yeah. it's it's the same thing. It's like, hey, Mike is interested in playing music with me. You know, yeah. that was big. Hey, we just got on NPR song of the day, you yeah. know, and someone spent the time to actually dissect the lyrics. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's cool too. But yeah, it's about, really, it's just about having the ability to do this, you know, just, sure. just play. Like, whether it's playing on a Wednesday night together at band practice, you know, that's pretty, that can be pretty good. Yeah. And that's almost enough. You know, you need that gig or the second gig or the third gig. And, you know, not that we're necessarily going out on the road on a long tour, but if Emmy Black, our uh, record label, figures out how to do that, maybe that would happen. Who knows? Now that there's no expectation that, you know, you're going to be the next REM or whatever, is it more enjoyable because of that? Well, there's definitely all kinds of heartbreak, you know, when, yeah. when you're trying to make, you know, you know, I did the whole dance for the A&R guys. And I remember the guy that signed Billy Idol said he he wouldn't sign me because he wouldn't sign a guy that just wore a T-shirt and jeans on stage, you know. Need that sure, leather jacket. That, everybody started getting the <laughs> angular haircuts yeah. and, uh, you know. Yeah. Start looking more like Spando Ballet. You're able to just enjoy the process now because you're yeah, doing it for yourself. Definitely. And, you know, even as, you know, fellow bandmates, I mean, there's a certain amount of, you know, absurd infighting that goes on. But it's pretty tame and mellow compared to, you know, when you're an angsty 20-year-old and you're trying to, I don't know what, you know, you got... You got you haven't figured out your emotional baggage yeah. yet, and neither has anybody else. And everyone's feeling competitive. And what am I doing with my life? And there's pressure from, you know, parents and 
girlfriends and, you know, whatever. And, or, you know, how do I make it and not really knowing what you're doing. And It's funny. I, uh, I was in Boston last week and I talked to Clint from uh, Mission to Burma about this. That's funny. We used to pl- play yeah. with, with Burma. I imagine there'd be a lot of overlap. And yeah. He's got a, obviously it's not qu- quite a parallel, but he's, you know, he has a similar situation in that. I mean, he really left music altogether. Yeah. He was one of the first guys to kind of drop out and he yeah. was so talented. We were all kind of stunned, you know. <laughs> I remember that so clearly. Yeah. I tried when I, after the individuals broke up, I I actually reached out to him, you know, to try to yeah. see if he wanted to start a band or something. Because he was he was out in New York a lot too. From when, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what I was thinking because he was in Boston. Yeah. I don't maybe I don't know I don't know. Yeah, he's I loved his writing so yeah. much. I guess you have to be conscious of whether or not do you feel ridiculous doing it after a certain point right yeah. for, for them it was he was so far removed from it and then they just had kind of out of the blue somebody brought them back into it and the band's been kind of sort of back together in some form or another for the past decade or so but and he made some solo records too he made a yeah, couple yeah and he had a, he had a, he had another band after yeah. after burma but i don't think he had a definite answer but he simply said yeah i mean we're kind of that's something that we discuss on a fairly regular basis it's just at, at what point at what point, maybe, obviously we're not 20-year-olds anymore. At what point does this does this sort of start feeling silly? And then once it does start feeling silly, then it's just like, all right, it's time to pack it in. Yeah, it already it feels... It feels silly? It feels silly sometimes, but, you know, I don't care about that, you know? I want to hear what Mike has to say on this topic. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, probably what he said or thought. It's like, at this point in our lives, yeah. you don't really think like, we're going to get in yeah. Rolling Stone or or whatever. You just feel like, wow, we're we're making stuff that we think is pretty good, which is the first thing. We yeah. all enjoy doing this. We rehearse every week sometimes, whether we have a gig or not, because we like it. We're working on new songs. And I don't think anyone has the expectations that, oh, this is going to be some real big thing that we're all going to mm-hmm. quit our jobs and tour the world or something. Yeah. We we love to play gigs. We play as many as we can. We promote them. We work with our label. But that's just the stuff that you do. You have to do that now. And we're always excited when our friends and maybe even some strangers come and see us and they think it's okay. You know, they like it. Are you married as well? No. Okay. What was the process of, of running it by the wife? Was she into the idea? She was actually into it. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, she, again, Clint's in a different situation. He's got young children. So so yeah. actually saying, hey, uh, you know, I've got this day job, but uh, I'm going to back away and maybe be in a band again. She was a little wary. Yeah. Did he keep his... He's still doing... He's still... He yeah, still he's a television producer. Yeah, yeah, he's still doing he it. But, of, uh, yeah, they found a nice balance, I think, yeah. where they don't play all the time, but they can, you know, do a quick run here yeah. and there. But she was she was supportive. Yeah, I I mean she's uh yeah she you know she was never I mean I don't think she got involved with me thinking you know this guy's gonna make a she was not a, a rock star wife yeah. back in the day yeah. you know we actually met at New York Rocker so we've been together for you know a long time even before we got married we've been married over thirty years and then she sounds like given you know the circumstances under which you met her that she would be pretty amenable to the idea of you playing music I think she sort of gets a kick out of it yeah she wants to see what what I'm gonna come up with as far as you know subject matter sometimes yeah. she's afraid I'm gonna maybe do something that's gonna be a little too 
personal personal or something and so i was relieved like if i said i got a new song i'm gonna play tonight and then she's like yeah. kind of cringing and then it's okay you know where are you guys at i mean this is it sounds like the album isn't you're not imagining it as a one-off we're waiting to see you know what yeah. what happens next we have a song called what happens next what uh, is what does what, what happens next mean i mean obviously you're, you know you're kind of in control of your own destinies when it comes to keeping the band back together. yeah we're kind of i mean this record just came out a yeah. couple months ago so the idea that you have something that can represent you maybe opens other doors obviously we you know we got a bunch of sort of nice press and some yeah. ra- we got some crazy radio play in different places and uh emmy came up with this idea of like this family tree poster that now there's like an interactive version i don't know if that's been posted yet but you know you can click on any of the bands on it and like videos pop up it's kind of amazing you know and i wouldn't have thought of that we have drink coasters you go to a bar you throw the drink coasters with the album cover around i like the idea of (laughs) measuring success by uh merchandising (laughs) yeah this this girl at the bar when we played our uh a a young girl she goes were you in that band that you were really good? And she said, are you famous? And I said, famous enough to have a drink coaster. Yeah, and I put it in the drink coaster that yeah. she had her drink on. Obviously, things have changed a lot since you moved there. But is is the scene as it exists now in Hoboken, is it sort of supportive in the same way? I mean, it sounds like people are excited that you were doing stuff again. There are people, you know, that I've known for a long time that have kept making music. Yeah. Jim Master, who was also in the bongos, he's got the guitar bar. He puts on shows at the guitar bar with with yeah. different artists. A lot of talented musicians work at the guitar bar. Karen Cool, and she's she's sort of a great you know kind of blues rock guitar player. And uh, Elena Sky and and Boo, who do kind of like a bluegrass thing. And Overlake, who are on Bar Nine, who are from Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cucumbers who don't live in Hoboken anymore, but you know they're always hopping back into the scene. There's definitely stuff yeah. going on. I mean, Hoboken as a place has moved more towards it. Sort of Williamsburg is the arts center. I'd say Hoboken is like kind of the sports center. I mean, we have like adult male lacrosse teams, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's not quite the a lot of the art. You know, a lot of the people that we knew have yeah. have, have left. It is interesting though that bands don't really bands don't seem to break up anymore. Bands bands just kind of exist in in the ether. They're they're always kind of around. Yeah, I you know all I think of a lot of the people that were we were involved with back in the early eighties. Yeah. I mean, they're all still doing music to some degree. Maybe they take a hiatus, but then you know, like Peter Hall's Apple from the DBs, he's mm-hmm. always periodically quitting music and leaving Facebook and then next thing you know he's back. The occasional DBs are he just produced and, uh, yeah. some tracks uh by a band that's on Barnon called the Paranoid Style and Yeah. So it goes on. People they you know, I think if you've got the bug to make music yeah. it reasserts itself in different times and in different ways and uh, It's nice too though. I mean I I think you guys are the timing is good from the standpoint of, you know, there's good there, there's precedent now in a way there maybe wasn't before for you know being able to age gracefully and and do it and still make music i mean i think about a little bit before your time but kind of a contemporary i think about like nick Lowe, for example is a good example of somebody who's like yeah i can still do this i mean you know obviously i'm going to be doing it differently he's he's got really great hair he's He's got got the best hair hair in the world yeah just jerry fowler runs like the arts program in uh, hoboken just emailed me a thing that that nick Lowe's playing at 
outpost in the burbs in Montclair, and we're yeah. both like, look at that hair. <laughs> you know, it's just like amazing, yeah. you know. He's made some really great yeah. new records that are these sort of countrypolitan by way of England records that, oh, fantastic, fantastic writing. There's precedent for, again, like not having to feel silly because there's a there's a way to do it. When you look at people like a, that were sort of mentors, even if we didn't know them, people like yeah. Willie Nelson or a lot of the great jazz guys, yeah, Duke yeah. Ellington or whatever, playing well into their 80s and writing and composing and Dave Brubeck and stuff. And musicians that we grew up admiring, Bob Dylan's still mm-hmm. very busy, you know, you or the Stones, you know, who we all love. You feel like, well, it's not that absurd that we're playing, you know, if you feel good and you feel like yeah. you want to do something, you should. You know, and a lot of those, these people that we were talking about, like Peter Holzapple, Peter said an interesting thing that I saw once that he said, well, I play music now. I pretty much do what I want to do. I'm not relying on it to keep me warm or keep my family fed. I do other things, but I find time to make music. And it's usually when you do that, you make music that you really want to make. You're not doing it to get a bar gig or to, I got to make the rent this month. I have to do something stupid musically, you know. So I think that's part of it. We do this because we really... We love to gig. We take care of the business for it. But, you know, we really like playing Glenn's songs. There you go. That's Glenn Morrow and Mike Rosenberg. Thank you so much to them for taking the time to do that. They were actually playing around the corner at the Bowery Electric in Manhattan to promote the release of their new record, Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help, which, believe it or not, is his first in 28 years. Obviously, Glenn has been keeping pretty busy in the meantime as the owner of uh, Barnett Records and just a, uh, an advocate of the Hoboken, New Jersey music scene in general. Really enjoy that conversation. Lots of uh, insights into what it's like getting back into something after nearly uh, three decades out of it. Uh, and a really, really great record. I uh, was was really kind of taken back by how, how tight and dynamic it was, you know, given the fact that it's been such a long while since uh, he's recorded in that fashion. Thanks so much to them. Thanks to Carrie and Emily for helping set that up. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you do like this show, please consider supporting us on Patreon or rating us over on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. Like us on Facebook. I think that's about all I got for this week. We I have been traveling quite a bit, so I've been home for uh, until about four days in the past month or so, but the upside of that is that I've been able to gather some uh, really interesting interviews in Seattle and San Francisco, um, also uh, near Comic-Con as of the recording of this, near Comic-Con was just this weekend, picked up some good ones over there, and I've got about uh, three months worth of shows on the books right now so lots of great episodes really excited to bring them to you and we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of r i y l 